Father, through this passage, would you make Jesus known to us this morning? Would you teach us more about who Jesus is and what he has done for us on that cross? It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, uh, of course, many of you know, if not all of you, uh, we just finished celebrating Thanksgiving this past week. And I know that that day can be maybe more stressful for some than others. Spending extended time with your family may not always be enjoyable, uh, may not always be relaxing depending on uh, the situation, but I think we can all agree the best part about Thanksgiving is the next day when you can now begin celebrating Christmas without fear of judgment. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, we, we all love stuffing our faces, we all love watching football, maybe spending a little time with family, but at the end of the day, we all know Thanksgiving is really just a stepping stone to Christmas. It's like the middle child of holidays, right? It's like we all just have to get past this, and then we can get onto the real good stuff, you know? And, and with Christmas comes tradition. I'm sure many of you will be uh, celebrating and, and kind of following traditions throughout this Christmas season. One of the more recent traditions that I heard of uh, from a family in our church is that starting in November, so they're already well into this, uh, they watch a Christmas movie, one, one Christmas movie a day until Christmas. Okay, so for, for two months. Well, I didn't even know there were that many Christmas movies. Um, so that's one example. One, one thing that I think of personally when I think of Christmas traditions is something that we did in, in my family. On Christmas morning, my mom was always sure to put an orange and an apple in our stockings. And some of you may actually be familiar with this tradition. Maybe you've even practiced it in your own home. But for those who are unfamiliar with this, who have never heard of this idea, uh, basically the background behind this is that during the Great Depression, of course, a lot of families had a hard time providing gifts for their children when it was Christmas time. And they could only give what they could afford. In many cases, that was just maybe an apple or an orange, which would have been a real treat at that point. And, and so my family was even included in that. You know, my, my great-grandparents went through the Depression and, and gave to my grandparents, you know, a, a, an orange and, and maybe an apple in their stocking for a few years during, during those uh, times of trials. <clears throat> and so having that apple and orange in my own stocking on, on Christmas morning was supposed to kind of represent something. It was a tangible reminder of something that was otherwise intangible to me. I wouldn't have experienced it otherwise. Those gifts underneath the Christmas tree that had my name on it, those weren't gifts that I deserved. Those were not gifts that were guaranteed to me. Those were not gifts that I was owed by my parents. I was fortunate to have the kind of Christmas that I had each year. And I should be thankful for whatever I did have in that moment. That is what my parents were trying to communicate to me each time they put that apple and that orange in my stocking. It was symbolic fruit. And in our passage today, John 19, 17 through 42, 
Jesus adopts a, a really similar strategy in order to communicate something important to us. He's going to use kind of these tangible markers and these reminders in order to kind of uh, reveal something to us that's maybe intangible. And when we read the story of Christ's crucifixion, it can, be, it can be tempting to really dwell on the physical realities of the scene, the gore of Jesus' death, how bloody his body was, how much pain he endured. These are not unimportant things. But, but I want to propose to you this morning that John, as he writes his gospel, as he writes this crucifixion narrative, and Jesus, as he lays his life down on the cross, are wanting us to see more than just the physical realities of the crucifixion. They want us to understand something that is non-physical, something that cannot be seen. And so, what is it that they want us to see in this passage, what are they trying to remind us of? Well, they're trying to remind us that everything that's wrong in our relationship with God, Christ is going to make right. Everything that is broken deep inside of us, Christ is making whole. The theological term for this is propitiation if you've ever heard that word. It's the idea that, that Christ's death not only removes the moral stain of sin, it removes the, the personal offense of sin. By bearing the wrath of God in our place, Jesus literally takes our place on the cross. Kevin DeYoung has a, has a good, very simple, straightforward definition for, for propitiation. He says that propitiation is where God becomes pro-us. That now God sees us through the lens of Christ and what Christ has done. And because of that, God is now for us, not against us. And the way this spiritual act is going to be shown to us in our passage is through physical acts and statements that take place throughout this crucifixion narrative. Specifically, there are going to be two physical reminders at Jesus' crucifixion that teach us something about this process a propitiation. Okay, two reminders that we're going to see. And we see the first one in verse 28. Jesus has most likely been on the cross for several hours at this point. He's, he's bleeding out. He's exhausted. And in his, his exhaustion, he says these two words, I thirst. Why is this statement so significant? Well, most obviously, it reminds us that Jesus was truly human. So, everything that happened to him throughout this crucifixion experience, he felt, he experienced completely. He's, he's not just trying to sympathize with the human condition here when he says something like, I thirst. He's experiencing what it means to be human in its entirety. And obviously, it's important that we recognize the divinity of Jesus. That's an important aspect of who Jesus is, that, that he is God. But it is just as important that we also recognize the humanity of Jesus. Because if Jesus was, wasn't God, then he wouldn't be powerful enough to actually atone for sin. But if Jesus wasn't human, then he would not be qualified to pay the penalty for sin. 
Who's the one that brought sin into the world? It's humanity. Who is the one that is under judgment by God? It's humanity. Who is the one who deserves eternal punishment for sin? It's humanity. And so when Jesus records this brief statement on the cross, it's a reminder to us that Jesus is human and he's qualified to pay the penalty of our sin. He's fulfilled what we could not fulfill because he is God and he is man. He is able to to bring both aspects into the payment of sin and give us eternal life through it. But not only does this statement remind us of Christ's humanity, it also reminds us of the substitutionary nature of the cross. In fact, depending on what translation or or kind of Bible you have, you may even see in in verse 18 a, a small reference letter next to Jesus' statement. And that reference letter might direct, direct you back to John chapter 4. So what's the connection that's being made here between John 19 and the crucifixion, Jesus saying, I thirst, and then John chapter 4? Well, in John 4, Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman who's getting water from the local well. And as he approaches her, he asks her for a drink. And in that conversation with this woman, Jesus says something to her very important. He says, if, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. In other words, when Jesus says on the cross, I thirst, he's not just providing detail on his physiological condition. He's he's explaining to us the spiritual significance of what he's doing in that moment. Every blessing, every promise that Jesus has, he's extending to us in exchange for our sin and its punishment. All that Jesus has to offer is being poured out on those who believe in him to the point where he has nothing left to give. He has nothing left to offer. He has quenched our thirst with living water. And he has done it by taking that thirst on himself and receiving the full condemnation for sin that belonged to us. And in this moment, Jesus cries out, I thirst so that you will thirst no more. So that's the first reminder at Jesus' crucifixion that gives us insight into Him being the propitiation for our sins. He acts as a substitution for our sins by offering us living water and bearing our spiritual thirst. But the second reminder at the crucifixion, something that helps us see what what maybe can't otherwise be seen, is the fact that Jesus actually dies for our sin. And I, and I realize maybe that doesn't, that doesn't sound like it's, it's a, a very significant statement, like that's not much of a shocker. We know that Jesus, you know, he died on the cross. He died for our sin. But, but I'm trying to point out to us, he doesn't, it's not just that he suffers for our sin. 
It's, it's not just that he, he gets uncomfortable for our sin. It's that he actually dies. His body ceases to function for the sake of our sin. And we'll see why that's significant in a moment here. But in verse 30, just moments after Jesus has told us that he thirsts, now he gives one final statement from the cross. He says, it is finished. And then John tells us he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And this is a lot like Jesus' statement in verse 20. Uh, yeah, verse 28, in the sense that we, we have this kind of irony showing up in verse 30. We know that Jesus has already proclaimed earlier that <clears throat> he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's John 14, 6. And yet the one who says that he's the life is now giving up his life on the cross. So once again, we see this kind of substitutionary role that Jesus, Jesus is playing here in the process of redemption. Everything that he has, everything that he is, he's, he is pouring out on that cross. He is the life, and yet he is giving up his life. He is living water, and yet he on that cross is saying, I thirst, I am parched. But the important thing for us to understand here is that Jesus' death is not just limited to the physical realm. When, when he says it is finished, he's not just referring to the fact that his heart is beginning to stop beating or that his lungs are becoming weak. When Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, it means that sin has met its end because through Christ's death and resurrection, sin is defeated. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 6.6. 6. In Romans 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And actually, Paul goes on in that same chapter, verses, verses 10 and 11. He says, For the death of Christ, or, uh, yeah, for the death Christ died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is important for us to understand. What Paul is saying here in Romans, what Jesus is saying here on the cross is important for us to understand because not only does Jesus guard us from the penalty of sin, by dying on the cross. He, he guards us from the power of sin as well. As Jesus is put to death, he puts sin to death. And as we receive Christ's gift of salvation, we receive freedom from sin because Christ has already defeated it on our behalf when he died on the cross. How many times do we breathe life back into sin that Christ has already killed? How many times do we resuscitate sin that Christ has already put to death at the crucifixion? And yet Jesus is saying to us here in John 19.30, it is finished. All your struggles, 
all your temptations, all your addictions, all your brokenness, He has conquered on the cross. Do not give life to that which Jesus has already pronounced dead. Do not fuel the flames of sin that have already been extinguished by the blood of Christ. The beauty of the cross is not just that it provides a a glory out there in the future for those who believe. The beauty of the cross is that we can experience freedom from sin's bondage today because of what Christ has done. And there are some people in this room this morning whose lives are overcome with sin, if you are honest with yourselves. You feel ashamed of the things that you have done. You feel ashamed of the things that you have thought. You feel ashamed of the things that you desire. And you cannot imagine a world where you could ever feel innocent again. And let me say to you, there is freedom in Christ. He has already declared victory over that sin in his death. And he has proven that victory in his resurrection. And so my encouragement for you this morning, if you find yourself overcome with shame, overcome with brokenness and sin and darkness, my encouragement is come to Jesus. As cliche as that might sound to some of us in this room, Come to Jesus and experience life. He is enough to cover your sin. He is enough to defeat the sin that reigns in your heart and in your mind. So those are the two reminders that we see here at the scene of the crucifixion. When Christ says, I thirst on the cross, he reminds us that he actually takes our place in the acceptance of God's condemnation for sin. And when Jesus cries out, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit on the cross, he's reminding us that in his physical death, he's also putting sin to death so that we can experience true life in him. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is focus on the responses we see to Christ's crucifixion here. There are a lot of different people that we see in John 19. There's a lot of different people that are present during this uh, this obviously climactic moment in John's gospel. And we won't have time to look at all of those characters and break them down in detail at all. But I think we can break down this passage into three basic responses toward Jesus and the crucifixion. And the first response that we see is a rejection of Jesus. This response is seen most clearly in the chief priests. And, and really, it's, it's probably the most obvious and blatant response that we see in this entire passage. And so we can, we can read and, and see what the chief priests are doing and have no doubt where they stand as it comes to Jesus. This group of religious leaders has plotted, has schemed, has influenced manipulated, bribed, even lied in order to ensure that Jesus would be killed. That is the level of hatred that we see from these people. In fact, in verse 21, we see the chief priests even attempting to convince Pilate to make edits to the sign that he's made 
to put above Jesus' head on the cross. And they are trying to convince him to say, instead, uh, this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Don't say that he is the king of the Jews. Just say he claimed to be king of the Jews. We don't, we don't want anyone to think for one second as they pass this man's cross that he truly was a king. But this was not the first time that this group of religious leaders had rejected Jesus as their king. And really, it wasn't even the most dramatic rejection that they had of Jesus. In verse 15, so just, just a few verses before this scene, the Jews begin demanding for Jesus' crucifixion. And Pilate asks what I would say is an obvious question in the moment, which is, shall I crucify your king? In other words, are you really sure you want me to do this? Do you realize, are you thinking about who this man might be? And notice the chief priest's response to Pilate's question. This is significant. The end of verse 15, the chief priests say, We have no king but Caesar. Do not miss the irony in what just happened here. You have Jewish religious leaders who claim to follow God, who study and know the Scriptures, but who have more passionately and more quickly rejected and denied the kingship of Jesus than even a Roman government official who is a pagan. Not just once, but twice. And, and in one of those cases, they've even denied their own religion by claiming that Caesar is their true king rather than God. They've become so consumed by the idea of protecting their own power and protecting themselves from Jesus' claims that they've entered into a self-destructive pattern of thinking. They accuse Jesus of committing blasphemy as they themselves commit blasphemy. And in the rejection of Christ, they end up actually rejecting God himself fully and completely. And not only do we see an outright rejection of Jesus in this passage, the next response we see at the crucifixion is actually finding agreement with Jesus. So we see rejection from the chief priests, and we're going to now see agreement with Jesus, most clearly in the life of Pontius Pilate. A couple of weeks ago, as I was starting to kind of study this passage a little bit more in preparation for this message, I was talking with Chris in our office, and we both kind of agreed, you know, the most interesting character in this, in this whole chapter, to me anyway, is Pilate. Not necessarily because he, he just kind of, in and of himself, is an interesting person, really, but it's because we, we seem to kind of pick up on the fact that he's continually wrestling with who he believes Jesus to be. So starting in chapter 18, you see Pilate genuinely questioning Jesus in order to learn who he really is. And the more that he questions Jesus, the more hesitant he becomes to put Jesus to death. More than once, Pilate even tries to avoid the situation entirely. 
by, by telling the Jews, why don't you just deal with this man under your own laws, right? Why do I have to be involved in it at all? And at other points, he does his best to even spare Jesus from death. He tries to release him. He tries to present options of, do you want me to release Jesus or Barnabas? Why don't I just flog him instead of crucify him? You know, all of these things Pilate, Pilate seems to do in order to kind of spare Jesus' life. And even after uh, Pilate kind of gives the go-ahead to crucify Jesus, we see him make this sign in verse 19 that calls Jesus the king of the Jews, which is a pretty bold statement to make as a Roman government official. So does Pilate believe in Jesus or does he not believe in Jesus? Is Pilate a hero or is he a villain? Is he a protagonist or is he an antagonist in this story? Well, I think that's maybe a complicated question, but I would say here's my assessment personally. Pilate agreed with who Jesus claimed to be. But his agreement never actually translated into obedience. At least not as far as John explains in this passage. What motivates Pilate throughout this entire story is not truth, but fear. He fears being removed from his position for not acting rightly in this situation. He fears the backlash of an angry mob that's seeking vengeance. And for this reason, Pilate might be, might be the most relatable character that we have in John 19. Because if I had to guess, the people in this room are probably, for the most part, not trying to absolutely, undeniably reject Jesus, like the chief priest rejected Jesus. But there may be people in this room this morning who find themselves agreeing with Jesus, who, who agree with maybe some of the things that Jesus has said, but that agreement has never actually translated into obedience toward Jesus, submission beneath Jesus. And friends, I just want to remind us this morning, the Christian life is more than just agreeing intellectually with what Jesus says. The Christian life is following Jesus in obedience even when we do not agree with what he says. Even with, when Jesus uh, commands things that are inconvenient for us, that seem irrational to us, that seem inconvenient for us. And that is where Pilate seems to fall short. His agreement never becomes obedience. So we've seen outright rejection of Jesus by the chief priests. We've seen agreement with Jesus from Pilate. And in our final response, we see a love for Jesus. Now, we could definitely look at uh, Jesus' mother as an example of this response. But I actually want us to, to look more closely and focus our attention on John, who appears to be standing near Mary at this point in the crucifixion. Why is John there? 
That is the big question. In Matthew 26, 31, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you will all fall away from me, or you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And yet, John is there. He is the exception to Christ's prophecy, which is pretty remarkable. But what's even more remarkable about John being at Jesus' crucifixion is that in the very next chapter over, in John 20, 8-9, John himself, who is writing this gospel, admits to us that until he had seen the empty tomb, until he had walked inside and witnessed Jesus' body not being there, he did not yet believe or understand that the Messiah was going to be raised from the dead. In other words, when John is standing before Jesus on the cross, he genuinely believes everything is over. When John is before Jesus on the cross, he has no response to those who are now labeling Jesus as a fraud as a scam artist, as an insane person. Everything that John has committed his life to over the past several years has has turned into an absolute failure. So why is John there at the crucifixion? He is there because he loves Jesus. Not in the way that we often talk about loving Jesus in this kind of lighthearted sense of the word love. Not in the sense that when we say we love Jesus, we really just mean we love Christianity or we love being a Christian or we love uh, being with Christians. John loves Jesus so much that he is willing to stand there in front of everyone and be humiliated and mocked and arrested, and even crucified himself. That is love. And that is the right response to Jesus' crucifixion. It is a love for Jesus. But there's a fourth response to Jesus' crucifixion that we need to discuss. It's the most important response. And it's not in John 19. It's your response to the crucifixion. A few years ago, I was watching a clip of a, a Christian speaker, evangelist, who was uh, becoming very popular at the time. And he was being interviewed by someone. And in that interview, this, this uh, Christian speaker, he, he made this very interesting statement. He said, the cross isn't the revelation of my sin. It's the revelation of my value. Because God wouldn't pay such a high price for something if it didn't have a lot of value to it. And and, and I I don't know exactly his heart behind that statement, but I will say this, there is a problem with thinking that way. Because when we attribute the death of Christ to our inherent value, we make the cross a business move. God is simply paying fair market value 
for a highly sought-after product. If we believe it's our value that drives Jesus to his crucifixion, the cross just becomes a transaction. But if we believe it's our sin that drives Jesus to the crucifixion, then the cross becomes the most beautiful, most complete demonstration of love we have ever seen and could ever imagine. And so will you respond to the love of Christ today? Will you respond not just with agreement, but with obedience? Will you respond in adoration and praise for who Jesus is because you realize he is the only way you can receive freedom from sin's punishment. I hope that you will. At this point in the service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And, and just like Jesus is reminding us of these spiritual truths through physical means in John 19, this time together is going to be an important opportunity for us to actually hold the bread and cup in our hands, to taste them, to see them, and be reminded of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. In his humility, he laid himself down and allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. If if you're with us this morning and you would say, I am not a Christian, I am not a follower of Christ, then I just want to invite you to kind of observe what we do this morning. This is, this is just kind of a family moment that we're going to have together. We do this to remind ourselves of who it is that, that actually binds us together in Christian community. But I also want to remind you this morning, I want to provide an opportunity for you this morning, that if you are not a Christian today, and you would say, I have not done what John has done, I have not given myself fully to Jesus, then I want, you to, uh, I want to invite you today to do that. To proclaim your love for Jesus above everything else. To be willing not just to agree with Jesus, to obey Jesus, to submit to Jesus. The propitiation of Christ is available to you today if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord.